And now introductions for today's speaker. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Ty Gluckman, a practicing cardiologist with Providence Heart Institute, as well as the medical director for the Center for Cardiovascular Analytics, Research, and Data Science. Dr. Gluckman is certainly a familiar face to many of us, a tremendous leader and an eager teacher here in the Portland area, always generous with his time as well as his skills. Uh, sometimes I don't know where he gets it all, uh, given his incredible involvement in national leadership and research. Dr. Gluckman serves as Associate Editor for Practice Guidelines and Clinical Documents for ACC.org. That's the primary website for the American College of Cardiology. He is also National Chair of the ACC Patient Navigator Program, Focus MI, and Governor of the Oregon Chapter of ACC. Dr. Gluckman's primary clinical interests focus in the identification, coordination, and implementation of cardiovascular care improvement strategies. He was the lead developer for the ASCVD app and has authored many peer-reviewed publications in prominent journals such as JAK, Circulation, JAMA, JAMA Cardiology, and many others including through this very busy year of COVID. We're delighted to have you join us, Dr. Gluckman. Without further ado. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. You have absolutely made my day, and it's a real pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, the, the title for my talk is Cardiovascular Involvement in COVID-19, The Good, the Bad, and the Unknown. I think you're going to find that there's not a lot of good. There can be a lot of bad, and, and probably we know the least about about a lot of things related to COVID in the heart. So the unknown is probably the most relevant here. This time that we're allotted doesn't do justice to cover all of these topics. So I'm gonna give you introductions to a lot of the different aspects in which COVID-19 can potentially wreak havoc in the cardiovascular system. And again, thank you for the very kind introduction and the opportunity to present today. I have no disclosures. And these are the learning objectives. Our goal is to have you walk away understanding cardiovascular comorbidities that are common in patients with COVID-19, to understand the multitude of potential cardiovascular manifestations of COVID-19 and the mechanisms that may underlie them, and then describe recommended evaluation and treatment strategies for patients who have acute cardiac injury, myocarditis, and arrhythmias in the setting of COVID-19. So with that, let's dig in. And a lot of people have framed this a lot of different ways, but really this is the virion that changed the world. And all of us in healthcare recognize the indirect and direct effects of SARS-CoV-2, um, but obviously this extends well beyond healthcare in education, in the business community, uh, in uh, unfortunately uh, putting a uh, rec increased recognition, or I guess I should say fortunately increasing the recognition of disparities in care that have been longstanding and hopefully putting a bright spotlight on it so that we can eradicate those um, shortcomings in the many years to come. This is data that I pulled last night as of 8.22 p.m. and it really is a snapshot for those of you who have not looked at this and I can't imagine anyone out there who has not looked yet at the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, but this gives you a snapshot of the global case counts. We are approaching 91 million cases, and these are reported cases. We fully understand that the magnitude of unreported cases 
uh, is dramatically higher than this. Um, but nonetheless, there are 91 million cases. And as you can see, a pretty dense uh, distribution throughout the United States uh, in most of the country uh, in terms of cases of COVID. This is a look as of yesterday at around noon of the number of cases and deaths in the United States. We are approaching 22,500,000 US cases, uh, and that is accounted for approaching 375,000 total US deaths. These are not population adjusted rates, but these are raw rates of deaths, and you can see the distribution throughout the United States. Not surprisingly, some of the highest total numbers of deaths are in the most populated states, California, Texas, Florida, to give some examples overall. So let's dive in a little bit more, and this is actually in COVID world, uh, really antiquated old data that was published now about nine months ago, but it is actually fairly reflective of what the distribution is of symptomatic disease with COVID-19 today. And this is a report of almost 45,000 symptomatic patients with COVID-19 from the Chinese CDC, published in JAMA again uh, almost a year ago. Um, and what it shows is of people who present with symptoms related to COVID-19, approximately 80% of individuals have mild disease, defined as having no or mild pneumonia. Roughly speaking, around 14% uh, of individuals have severe disease manifesting as dyspnea, hypoxia, or with greater than 50% lung involvement on imaging within a 24 or 48 hour period. And then lastly, about 6% of individuals have critical disease manifesting as respiratory failure, shock, or multi-organ dysfunction. This is a separate report that came out around the same time of almost 1,100 individuals with laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 in China, and it looked at the distribution of coexisting comorbidities, COPD, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, and it looked at all patients in that second column, but then it broke people down into non-severe disease versus severe disease, and then whether those people achieved an endpoint versus not achieving the endpoint, and the endpoint was defined by the American Thoracic Society guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia of being a composite of ICU admission, mechanical ventilation, or death. And I'll let you digest this perhaps offline, but I do want to point out that one of the most common comorbidities that was identified early on was hypertension. And in fact, people who had hypertension were more likely, or I should say people who had severe disease or achieved their endpoint, were more likely to have hypertension in the fourth and sixth columns respectively. And this begged a lot of questions about, is there a connection between hypertension and more severe manifestations of COVID-19? So this is a publication from New England Journal of Medicine many months ago that noted initial reports of overrepresentation of hypertension among patients with COVID-19, and in particular, more severe manifestations of COVID-19, reflective of the last article that I was highlighting. ACE2, which is essentially the binding site for spike proteins for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is it itself is a counter-regulatory enzyme broadly expressed throughout the body that degrades angiotensin 1 and 2 and attenuates its effect on vasoconstriction, sodium retention, and fibrosis. As I just stated, it's the binding site for SARS-CoV-2, whose principal target is lung alveolar epithelial cells, but is expressed throughout multiple different organ systems. And in select animal studies, RAS inhibitors, drugs like ACE inhibitors or ARBs, 
were are known to increase ACE2 expression, and it raised concern could individuals with hypertension being treated with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB lead to upregulation of the ACE2 receptor, facilitating a greater uh, binding of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and therefore a more severe manifestation of the disease. So many of us who are actually exploring this early on said there must be data from China to answer this question, right? It's an extremely populous country. Um, there are lots of people with hypertension. People must know the answer to this. Interestingly, when you look at the data separate from COVID-19, population-based studies have estimated that only about 30 to 40% of patients in China with hypertension are actually treated with antihypertensive therapy. And RAS inhibitors, drugs like ACE inhibitors or ARBs, are only used in about a quarter to a third of patients who are on antihypertensive therapy. So while many of us may have thought there's an answer to this that must be out there, it turns out that a small percentage of patients in China with COVID-19 were likely on a renin-angiotensin uh, aldosterone system inhibitor. Furthermore, we know that withdrawal of a RAS inhibitor can lead to worsening of clinical outcomes, and this is most evident in heart failure, particularly heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And in the quinopril heart failure trial, again, neither of these two trials related to COVID-19, withdrawal of quinopril led to progressive decline in clinical status for those people that were treated with quinopril. And in the TREAD-HF trial, if you had a patient who had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, put on a renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitor, who had recovery of their LV systolic function, if you withdrew the RAS inhibitor, it led to rapid development of LV systolic dysfunction. And this is why early on into the pandemic, the Heart Failure Society of America, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, absent a lot of clinical evidence, still recommended continuation of a RAS antagonist for those who are being prescribed these agents for indications for which they're known to be beneficial, heart failure, hypertension, or ischemic heart disease. And the one good thing I can tell you about the pandemic in terms of the science that's been generated thus far comes from this next study. And this is the BRACE Corona trial. It may not have risen into everybody's awareness, and it was presented at the European Society of Cardiology in September of this past year, but it was one of the first randomized trials to actually answer the question. This took over 650 patients chronically on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, hospitalized with COVID-19, this was in Brazil, randomized, and they were randomized either temporary cessation of therapy, their ACE or ARB, shown in blue below, or they were continued on their RAS inhibitor for 30 days. And when you look at days alive outside of the hospital or all-cause mortality, there was no significant difference. And while this didn't get into heart failure outcomes or other endpoints, it, I think, provides an affirmation of what the professional societies were recommending previously. Please continue your ACE inhibitor, your ARB, your ARNI, your aldosterone inhibitor in patients who have an otherwise an indication for it, hospitalized with COVID-19, managed in the outpatient setting with COVID-19, et cetera. So let me pivot into the meat of today's presentation and talking about the potential for acute cardiac consequences of COVID-19. You can see the picture of the virion at the top here and the three main bucketed areas in which we talk about potential cardi adverse cardiac consequences include myocardial injury or infarction, heart failure, and arrhythmias. And obviously this forms the mainstay of a lot of the conditions that I and my colleagues treat in cardiovascular medicine. We're treating people who are at risk for or who develop uh, myocardial infarction, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, whether with preserved or reduced ejection fraction, and arrhythmias. It's unfortunately not as simple as I just put out, and this is a really well done review 
um, that was published now in the last couple of months. And what I've chosen to do is to look at the direct effects and to some degree indirect effects of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the setting of COVID-19, highlighting mechanistically the various different mechanisms by which it can engender or facilitate adverse cardiac consequences. And then I tried to match that on the right-hand side with the cardiovascular manifestations. It's a little bit of a busy slide. I will tell you that the orange, green, yellow, and purple circles with numbers were not in the original manuscript. So I've adapted this to highlight that direct cardiac toxicity, endothelial damage and thromboinflammation, immune dysregulation and demand supply mismatch form the underpinnings of many of the cardiovascular manifestations seen on the right-hand side. I'm not gonna talk about dysregulation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system as I just highlighted a good portion of that overall. So uh, we don't do autopsies nearly as much as I did, or I should say I saw done uh, two to three decades ago when I was going through training. But nonetheless, this is a recent report published in the European Heart Journal of 21 consecutive patients who died from COVID-19 who were evaluated at autopsy. Now, these individuals didn't of themselves die from cardiovascular complications necessarily, but as you can see there, there was evidence of RV strain, focal pericarditis, endocardial thrombosis, diffuse infiltration by macrophages, small vessel thrombi, and lymphocytic infiltration with what would look like myocarditis. And so this is really only put on the screen here to illustrate a broad range of cardiovascular consequences just evaluating the heart at autopsy in those individuals dying from COVID-19. So when we talk about one of the consequences of COVID-19, we talk about myocardial injury, acute myocardial injury, and the way that we most commonly define this is a cardiac troponin level, standard troponin, high sensitivity troponin that's above the 99th percentile for the upper reference limit. And this is a really interesting bar graph that comes from a recent publication, the Journal of American College of Cardiology late last year, highlighting that the prevalence of an elevated troponin above the 99th percentile for the upper reference li limit is directly, <clears throat> excuse me, proportional to the sickness of the patient population that you're evaluating. If you look to the far, along the x-axis to the far left, survivors, those individuals not being hospitalized in the ICU, have a low prevalence rate of an elevated cardiac troponin level that's above the 99th percentile. In contrast to the far right, patients who die, patients who have very severe manifestations of COVID-19, it almost becomes ubiquitous in having myocardial injury overall. So what is the prevalence of myocardial injury? And more importantly, is it associated with adverse outcomes? The answer is yes. So this is looking at three different studies and a deeper dive in three of the studies included in the prior slide, highlighting that amongst those individuals that become mechanically ventilated, in the left, in the middle, those that have ARDS and those to the far right that die, the prevalence of an elevated cardiac troponin level above the 99th percentile is much more common in those individuals uh, who are receiving mechanical ventilation uh, than uh, the, than the absence of having myocardial injury overall. Simply put, those individuals who have one of these more severe manifestations of COVID-19 are much more likely to see myocardial injury or elevated troponin levels. It's important to realize that 
while we're going to talk about myocardial injury, I'm going to pivot to myocardial infarction, and then I'm going to distinguish those in a moment, or at least get into more of the nuance of that of those terms in a moment. But acute viral infection, independent of COVID-19, increases the likelihood of acute myocardial infarction. So this was published in New England Journal of Medicine now two and a half years ago, and it took just over 350 patients hospitalized for an acute myocardial infarction within one year before and one year after a positive test result for influenza or other viral infections. And along the y-axis, you can see the incidence ratio of acute myocardial infarction within seven days of a positive respiratory specimen is approximately 10 with those who are infected with influenza B, uh, is approximately five with influenza A, about three and a half for RSV, and then other respiratory illnesses are around three. So there is a significant increased likelihood in the setting of acute respiratory viral infections within a seven day time period of having an acute myocardial infarction. So I think much of what we're gonna be talking about with COVID-19 is not at all unique to COVID-19, but more the stress and strain of an acute respiratory illness can result in acute myocardial infarction. In addition, there have been reports of the most severe manifestations of myocardial infarction, that being ST segment elevation myocardial infarction in the setting of COVID-19. There's a case series at the top of 28 patients from the Lombardy region of Italy with ST segment elevation. You can see the demographics of this patient population. Interestingly, at the time of coronary angiography, only about two thirds had a culprit lesion requiring revascularization. 40% did not have obstructive coronary artery disease. And you can see the outcomes for that patient population. 40% of patients had died. So the presence of ST segment elevation is not an assurance that you're going to find obstructive coronary artery disease or even plaque rupture in this patient population. Similar findings are seen in this analysis of 18 patients from six New York hospitals with ST segment elevation. Only nine patients underwent coronary angiography. And again, only two thirds had a culprit lesion. About 72% of patients died during the hospitalization. So the presence of ST segment elevation may in fact just be a marker for a poor prognosis in this patient population, even absent a culprit lesion or obstructive coronary disease. So I've used terms like myocardial injury and myocardial infarction, and this is a publication from 2018, well predating the pandemic. This is from the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction, but I want to distinguish the terms myocardial injury and myocardial infarction because they're often used interchangeably well predating the pandemic. So myocardial injury, and this is reflective of that lighter pink circle on the left-hand side, is anyone who has a cardiac troponin above the 99th percentile for the upper reference limit. Within myocardial injury, that umbrella term, there are really three distinct etiologies or pathophysiological mechanisms that underlie myocardial injury. One that we talk the most about are acute myocardial ischemia due to plaque disruption. That's a type one myocardial infarction. And that's reflective of the red uh, circle on the left-hand side uh, there on the left. You can also have acute myocardial ischemia due to an imbalance in oxygen supply or demand. This is what's referred to as a type two myocardial infarction. And these individuals are not felt to have plaque disruption. They don't have a rupturing, fissuring, eroding of their plaque. And in fact, most often do not have any thrombus or clot associated with uh, what may be flow limiting or non-flow limiting coronary artery disease. These can occur in the setting of shock uh, as a result of reduced myocardial perfusion, hypoperfusion of the coronary arteries leading to a type two myocardial infarction, 
or increased oxygen demand as may occur in the setting of a tachyarrhythmia. And then lastly, not a type, two, type 1 myocardial infarction, not a type 2 myocardial infarction, but there are other causes, and this uh, is represented by common cardiac conditions like myocarditis, heart failure, defibrillator shocks, or systemic conditions including sepsis, critically ill patients, or chronic kidney disease that can result in myocardial injury, an elevated cardiac troponin level, but they don't have demand supply mismatch, they don't have plaque disruption, they have an altogether different mechanism underlying why they have an elevated troponin. And as you can see here in terms of those blue ovals on the left-hand side, anemia, ventricular tachyarrhythmias, heart failure, can in fact result in a myocardial infarction. It can result in other mechanisms that drive myocardial injury. So it's not so simple just to say that someone who has hypotension and shock always has a type 2 myocardial infarction. They in fact may have other etiologies that are responsible for myocardial injury. And in fact, they can potentially trigger a type 1 myocardial infarction as well. So importantly, when we talk about evaluation of these individuals, there are strict definitions. I won't go into detail about these strict definitions for the criteria met for a type 1, type 2, and other forms of myocardial injury, but rather want to focus on the fact that the treatment of a type 1 myocardial infarction that most of you know are anti-ischemic, anti-thrombotic therapies, plus or minus myocardial revascularization. It may happen in the cath lab, it may happen in the operating room um, overall. <clears throat> in the case of a type 2 myocardial infarction, fundamentally the goal of this is to figure out why does this patient have a demand supply mismatch and to eradicate the underlying driver of that mismatch. So it's identifying and treating the underlying insult. It might be restoring someone's blood pressure in the setting of vasodilatory shock. Um, and then initiating preventive therapies for coronary artery disease. And while we don't have a lot of data behind this, most of us believe that aspirin and statin therapy, along for those who are hypertensive, managing their blood pressure are keys long-term. And lastly, for other forms of myocardial injury, it's identifying and treating the underlying insult and then evaluating the need for preventive therapies for coronary artery disease, very similar to a type two myocardial infarction. So I'm gonna pivot now for a moment and talk about viral myocarditis. And this is an introduction to this and we'll revisit this a little bit later on. But myocarditis is not the least bit unique to COVID-19 and in particular, viral myocarditis is not a unique entity. It's been reported historically, now going back to data about eight years old, that it's about present in 22 out of 100,000 individuals with about one and a half million cases reported worldwide in 2013. Viruses are the most frequent or most common infectious etiology of myocarditis, and there have been increasing rates of myocarditis that have been reported during viral infection outbreaks, like with the Coxsackie virus. Shown at the bottom is the fact that during an, a viral infection that involves the heart, there's an acute phase of virus or viral replication. There then is a subacute phase where an immune response takes over, and in fact, much like we're going to talk about in a moment, a dysregulated immune response or an exaggerated immune response can in fact be the underlying mechanism driving a more chronic uh, manifestation of myocarditis, that being a dilated cardiomyopathy or overt heart failure with most commonly reduced ejection fraction. This is one of the most, I think, uh, talked about cartoons illustrating uh, the two components of not only COVID-19, but a number of other infections, respiratory viral pathogens that can lead to harm in the body. As is reflective in the upper portion of this cartoon, 
early on, most of us, when we get infected and manifest symptoms, are really attributing those symptoms to the acute viral response phase. These include mild constitutional symptoms, fever, dry cough, diarrhea, headache, um, and you can see some of the clinical signs and laboratory findings that are listed down below. This is due to the acute viral infectious process. Um, and then over time, you can see that early into this, but particularly the mid and later manifestations of the disease are a reflection of the host inflammatory response. The body's attempt at eradicating and controlling the virus that has infected the body. And some of the symptoms early on, including shortness of breath, can be a manifestation of a host inflammatory response trying to combat and eradicate the virus. But to the far right, the most severe forms of COVID-19, and this is true for other viral uh, pathogens, respiratory pathogens, things like ARDS, shock, cardiac failure, are actually felt to be disproportionately due to an exaggerated host inflammatory response. As you can see at the very bottom, Many of our therapies that were developed early on into the pandemic, drugs like antivirals such as remdesivir, were really the mainstay of trying to eradicate uh, the virus and control the virus during that acute viral response phase. But a number of other therapies, including steroids, have formed the mainstay of trying to control the host inflammatory response. And what we don't understand very well is why do two patients who may seemingly look the same why will some go on to manifest the most severe manifestations of that infectious process and go on to develop ARDS shock and succumb to COVID-19, but others don't? And there's a lot still to learn about the immune response to, in this case, SARS-CoV-2. So what are the proposed pathophysiological mechanisms underlying SARS-CoV-2 myocarditis? So after cell entry by SARS-CoV-2, it can impair stress granule formulation, um, leading to cell injury and facilitation of viral replication. Native T lymphocytes are primed for viral antigens via antigen-presenting cells, and prime T cells migrate to cardiomyocytes and cause myocardial inflammation through direct cell-mediated toxicity. And this is before we've engendered cytokine storm, or an unchecked inflammatory immune-mediated response where pro-inflammatory cytokines are released into circulation. And this creates a revved up process that augments further activation of T lymphocytes, further cytokine release. And without really therapeutics that keep that in check, it can lead to a very fulminant manifestation of the disease, in this case, fulminant myocarditis in its most severe forms. So I'm going to now turn to for a moment because a lot of people, when they think about myocarditis, they think about heart failure. And when you think about heart failure, you think about how do we effectively uh, measure that? And one of the things that comes to mind is natriuretic peptide levels, levels of uh, uh, factors like BNP or NT pro BNP. And this is a publication very early into the pandemic published in JAMA Cardiology. And on the left-hand side, you can see a retrospective single-center case series of 187 patients in China that looks at NT-proBNP levels along the y-axis. These are very high levels if you look where these levels go up to. But amongst those individuals that ultimately died, they had the highest levels of NT-proBNP. And along the right-hand side, the R value in terms of correlation is not perfect, but it's an interesting uh, snapshot highlighting or trying to get at the notion 
that individuals that have higher NT pro BNP levels also are amongst those individuals that have higher levels of plasma troponin. And it gets to an underlying belief that individuals who are undergoing severe stress in their body are more likely to have higher levels of NT pro BNP, or for that matter, any natriuretic peptide, and also higher levels of troponin, whether a standard troponin or high sensitivity troponin as well. I want to take this moment, I'll get up on my soapbox for a moment here and just say that elevated natriuretic peptides are not synonymous with heart failure. And if you look on the left-hand side, it's a pictorial cartoon that highlights that there are a number of driving mechanisms that can lead to elevated natriuretic peptides. Neurohormonal of cytokine cardiac stimulation as occurs in hyperthyroidism, sepsis, and shock. Infiltrative inflammatory infectious diseases, including cardiac amyloidosis endocarditis, pericarditis, Kawasaki's disease, high output states that may be due to hyperdynamic circulation in the setting of sepsis, critical illness, or even in intracranial pathologies, renal failure and cirrhosis, right ventricular dysfunction, secondary to pulmonary diseases, pulmonary embolism, pulmonary hypertension, chronic lung disease, decreased clearance um, as occurs in chronic renal failure. And then lastly, the group that we think about and most commonly associated with elevated natriuretic peptides represents just one of these groups, those individuals with systolic or diastolic dysfunction, acute or decompensated heart failure of either a systolic or uh, diastolic type, manifesting as heart failure with reduced or preserved ejection fraction, or a number of other underlying cardiac insults, acute coronary syndrome, valvular heart disease. So on the right-hand side, hopefully this rings true for a lot of you, natriuretic peptides are biomarkers of myocardial stress. They're not necessarily biomarkers of heart failure. They're frequently elevated in patients with severe respiratory illness, typically in the absence, again, typically in the absence of elevated filling pressures or clinical evidence of heart failure. Patients with COVID-19 often demonstrate significant elevations of these natriuretic peptides, but the significance of this finding is really uncertain and absolutely positively should not trigger an evaluation of or treatment for heart failure unless there's clear clinical evidence for the diagnosis. So simply put, having an elevated natriuretic peptide level, BNP, NT pro BNP in the setting of COVID-19 should not be a crosswalk to establishing a diagnosis of heart failure absent other signs or symptoms of that condition. How do you diagnose and manage uh, SARS-CoV-2 related myocarditis? This was published actually in Heart Rhythm, an EP journal in the last four to five months. I think it's a really nice flow diagram that talks about when should you suspect myocarditis? What are the bedside tests that can be done? What should be in your differential diagnosis? How do you further evaluate? And lastly, one can consider, but it's not an absolute requirement, endomyocardial biopsy. That's what EMB stands for. And then the management steps along the way. I'm not going to go through this line by line only to say that there is guidance out there to help provide support for clinicians who are challenged by the fact, does the patient sitting in front of me have myocarditis? So what about myocarditis after clinical recovery? I would say that we've talked about both in the lay press and in the scientific literature about myocarditis more than I can ever remember before, probably because of these two publications, this one on the next slide. So this was a prospective observational cohort study of 100 patients that had recovered from COVID-19 in Germany, of which two-thirds of these individuals never were hospitalized. They recovered at home. Laboratory testing, cardiac magnetic resonance, the gold standard for evaluating from an imaging perspective myocarditis, was performed in all patients a median of two and a half months after diagnosis 
compared to 50 healthy volunteers and 57 risk factor matched patients. Among patients with prior COVID-19, uh, uh, approaching three quarters of these patients had a persistently elevated troponin level now two and a half months out. 80% had abnormal cardiac MRI findings. 60% had CMR evidence of ongoing myocardial inflammation and a smaller percentage had evidence to suggest overt myocarditis. Endomyocardial biopsy in those that underwent it with the most severe cardiac MRI findings revealed acute lymphocytic inflammation. And you can see the native uh, T1 signal abnormalities as you move from left to right were more evident in those individuals that were hospitalized with COVID-19 compared to those that were at home with COVID-19 not surprisingly a reflection of those people's severity of COVID-19 compared to risk factor matched controls and healthy controls. I got to start by saying we don't do this as a matter of routine in doing cardiac MRIs in people who have influenza. So we don't know what the underlying prevalence is of cardiac MRI findings in people with acute viral infection, only to point out that it's fairly prevalent in those individuals recovering from COVID-19. And again, this study, which received probably even more attention, although did not have a control group, a comprehensive cardiac MRI examination performed on all competitive athletes at The Ohio State after testing positive for COVID-19 between June and August of 2020. These were performed 11 to 53 days after recommended quarantine. They also had an ECG, a troponin I level, and an echocardiogram performed on the same day. 26 athletes had this testing done. Um, about 60% were men, 40% were women. Mean age was 20 years of age. These were competitive uh, athletes involved in football, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, track. 12 athletes, sim seven women, reported mild symptoms during their infection. None of the athletes had concerning ischemic e ECG changes, an elevated troponin level, or abnormalities on echocardiography. And yet, 15% of the male athletes had CMR evidence of myocarditis, eight or 31% had MRI evidence of prior myocardial injury, calling out the fact that we're gonna find individuals, even absent ongoing symptoms, who may have imaging evidence to suggest injury or in more severe manifestations, myocarditis. Let me pivot now to arrhythmias in COVID-19. We should bucket these broadly into tachyarrhythmias or bradyarrhythmias, the potential for QT prolongation, or polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, aka torsade de point. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about this. There is a lot to learn about arrhythmias and myocardial, excuse me, and COVID-19, only to point out that there are varied mechanisms, particularly for people who are hospitalized with COVID-19, that may be drivers of arrhythmias, hypoxia, myocarditis, myocardial strain, but not having actual inflammation. Myocardial ischemia, whether that's due to a type 2 MI, a type 1 MI, uh, a medication effect, and this was brought out in particular in the setting of a lot of early use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, which have the potential, along with azithromycin, to prolong the QT and QT-corrected interval, along with intravascular volume imbalance and electrolyte imbalance as well. What is the prevalence of different arrhythmias overall? And this is what we've come down to in the literature, looking at largely single center cohort studies. This is one retrospectively looking at 700 patients amongst those hospitalized with COVID-19. If you look to the, uh, along the bottom, along the x-axis, the rates of cardiac arrest, atrial fibrillation, bradyarrhythmias, and non-sustained ventricular tachycardia are shown here. These are the absolute, these are not percentages, these are the number of events 
amongst these 700 individuals. So roughly speaking, about eight patients had uh, cardiac arrest out of 700 patients. What you can, I think, highlight uh, pretty clearly here is that those individuals experiencing these arrhythmias, the prevalence of these arrhythmias was greater amongst those individuals hospitalized in the ICU compared to non-ICU patients. And I think that comes as no surprise to many of us, particularly highlighting the fact that some of the other drivers of that, including volume shifts, hemodynamic abnormalities, electrolyte abnormalities, are more common amongst our population cared for in the ICU. I do want to call out the fact that some of the drugs that were purported to have benefit early on or are still under investigation, some of the antivirals on the left-hand side, some of the immune-modulating agents like tocilizumab, an IL-6 inhibitor, prednisolone, methylprednisolone on the right-hand side, you can see about the potential for drug-drug interactions between these drugs, other drugs that may manifest as abnormalities that are noted on the ECG. I do want to point out that one of the most feared complications is polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, also known as torsade de point, and the propensity for that occurring is directly related to the QT or QT-corrected interval being prolonged. This is a scoring system that was published in Circulation Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes now about eight years ago that highlighted that if you have more of the risk factors on the left-hand side, you would get additional points. The more points you have, the higher the risk profile that you are. I want to be clear, individuals who have higher risks by having more points doesn't mean that you will develop polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Rather, it shows a higher likelihood of developing QTC prolongation overall. It, I couldn't talk about this without talking about potential indirect effects of COVID-19. We're going to revisit that a little bit at the end here, but this is just to call out the fact that a systematic review of three studies done in U.S., France, and Italy have shown that the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest rate during the COVID-19 pandemic has gone up, looking at the incidence per 100,000 inhabitants in that region in 2020 shown in blue, 2019 shown in orange, and you can see that the incidence of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest has gone up significantly. I'll come back to in a moment why that in fact may be. Uh, the last group was heart failure, and this is a very busy slide, but it's purposely a very busy slide just to highlight that there are, I don't want to use the word innumerable, but a heck of a lot of mechanisms that may drive why someone may develop heart failure, and that may manifest to the far right as myocarditis, the far left is right heart failure uniformly or alone, and then left ventricular dysfunction, either abnormalities in filling, emptying, or both, that ultimately may all manifest as heart failure. This is an interesting editorial that was published in JAMA just a few months ago, looking at the shared commonality between COVID-19 and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. If you see to the far right, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, COVID-19 infection to the far left, many of these share cardiometabolic risk factors, older age, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and underlying inflammatory uh, pathophysiological mechanisms that may drive both underlying conditions. Ultimately, if someone gets infected with COVID-19 or develops COVID-19 in the setting of SARS-CoV-2 infection, they can develop uh, in the setting of more acute severe illness, direct viral infiltration, or an indirect inflammatory response 
they can further result in myocardial damage, right ventricular dilation and dysfunction, pulmonary hypertension, and left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. The same is true in the setting of adverse cardiac remodeling, all of which can worsen outcomes, symptoms and outcomes in those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And I think it's illustrated nicely in this retrospective single center cohort study of over 400 patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Those without heart failure are shown in blue, those with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction at baseline, these are pre-existing diagnoses, is shown in that salmon orange color, and those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in green, you can see that those individuals in the setting of COVID-19 were more likely, if they had pre-existing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, to have an ICU stay, and statistically to have ARDS, need for mechanical ventilation and mortality. So it's a very telling thing that those individuals with pre-existing HEFREF and HEFPEF face worse outcomes in the setting of COVID-19. And in particular, this is most obvious in those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, perhaps for many of the reasons I shared previously. I do wanna talk about the underpinnings of COVID-19 microangiopathy. I won't read through the mechanisms of this, only to say that the acute inflammatory response along with direct involvement of SARS-CoV-2 entering viral, excuse me, entering alveolar pneumocytes, epithelial cells, along with another, a number of other cells, including adjacent endothelial cells in the vasculature, can all lead to COVID-19-associated thrombotic syndrome characterized by microthrombi in small vessels and or rapidly progressing progressive thromboses in both large and small vessels. And this has been described on both the arterial and the venous side. Um, there are a number of types of microangiopathy that associated with COVID-19, HUS, TTP, DIC. Many people will often say that COVID-19 results in DIC, and that actually is not true. Now, people with COVID-19 can develop DIC, but the microangiopathy associated with COVID-19 is distinctly different from DIC. It, you will see in COVID-19 mildly depressed platelet counts, whereas in DIC, very low. There are no schistocytes in COVID-19, but they're sort of the sine qua non of people under the microscope in DIC. When you look at um, high LDH, they can be present in both uh, populations of individuals. COVID-19 has high fibrinogen concentrations, DIC low. In the case of COVID-19, we don't see bleeding, but DIC, you frequently see bleeding. So just to call out the fact that the microangiopathy associated with COVID-19 is not as a crosswalk DIC. This is just a reflection of over 3,000 patients hospitalized at a single center in, with COVID-19 in New York City. And you can see the distribution of DVT, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, stroke, and other thromboembolism. This is the prevalence of those conditions. And then not surprisingly, as has been reflective of things we've talked about previously, ICU patients were more likely to see these adverse thrombotic events compared to those outside the ICU. How should we be evaluating and in particular prophylaxing and treating people with VTE? I'm not gonna go through all of the details of the slide, only to point out that late last year, the American College of Chess Physicians and, uh, issued a guideline and expert panel report giving guidance to how we should be prophylaxing and treating this patient population. Bottom line is we should be prophylaxing all of these individuals for venous thromboembolism in the very same way that we prophylax against them if they don't have COVID-19, hospitalized in the very same way.
In patients with COVID-19, inpatient thromboprophylaxis only is recommended over an inpatient plus post-discharge thromboprophylaxis as a matter of routine. There may be selected patient populations in whom post-discharge thromboprophylaxis is recommended. Before somebody asks if you're managing a COVID-19 patient in the outpatient setting, there is, as of today, by the NIH treatment guidelines, no role for VTE prophylaxis nor use of antiplatelet therapy in those individuals who otherwise don't have indications to prophylax against thrombotic complications. And again, it's reflected here on the outpatient setting. There's really no role for prophylaxis, but we should be treating these patients in the very same way that we would treat people who develop a DVT or a pulmonary embolism. Differentiated among etiologies of shock, this is a busy slide highlighting that there are a lot of types of shock that people can manifest with in the setting of the most severe for forms of COVID-19, only to call out that some of the most common scenarios for people with COVID-19 is a mix of distributive shock, that due to underlying, for example, sepsis, and cardiogenic shock. So a mixed presentation of shock is what we've seen most commonly. This is a look at seven men aged 20 to 42 years hospitalized with COVID-19 with a clinical presentation of combined cardiogenic and vasodilatory shock related to a hyperinflammatory syndrome, again, that exaggerated immune response in the setting of cytokine storm with elevated SARS-CoV-2 IgG antibody titers and responsiveness to steroids. And you can see how keeping the immune system in check can result in improvement in injection fraction a decrease in many of our inflammatory biomarkers, a decrease in markers of myocardial injury, troponin levels, and biomarkers, natriuretic peptides of myocardial stress. I couldn't end this presentation without saying, don't lose sight of prevention. This is to say that for all of your patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease or primary prevention, we should be doing all of the basic blocking and tackling, treating their risk factors, initiating secondary prevention therapy, and promulgating healthful behaviors in primordial prevention. And I'd be remiss in saying when possible, you should be vaccinated against influenza and pneumococcus, if nothing else, to prevent febrile illnesses that can masquerade or mask the diagnosis of COVID-19. I do want to just end on a few point that are points that are really, really sobering. If we look back, and I took this yesterday from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, Remember that many of us in March of 2020, which seems like an eons ago, but we actually took steps to uh, defer non-urgent elective procedures in order to preserve our ICUs, preserve our operating rooms, preserve our emergency departments, preserve our ventilators to protect uh, all of the beds that we need to take care of patients with COVID-19 and who happen to have illnesses requiring hospitalization unrelated to COVID-19. This was what the curve looked like in March of 2020 when we were worried about flattening the curve. And you all saw <coughs> projections like this, where if we saw a rise in a daily number of cases, if we didn't take protective measures, we would see that pinkish, lightish red distribution, and we would overwhelm our healthcare system capacity reflective of that horizontal dashed line that moves from left to right across the screen. And if we took those measures, we could so-called flatten the curve and preserve our hospital capacity. This is actually a slide that's taken from a publication from Providence Data. Uh, I was fortunate to be involved with this publication of looking at 
the distribution of over 15,000 acute myocardial infarction hospitalizations between December 30th of 2018, well predating the pandemic, and May 16th, uh, several months into the pandemic within the Providence Health System. And as you can see here, these are rates of acute myocardial infarction, black or gray, all AMI, the lighter gray are non-STEMIs, orange reflective of STEMIs, looking at the abrupt downturn in rates of hospitalization for acute myocardial infarction and the two subtypes early into the pandemic. The overwhelming majority of these people did not have COVID. These people, unfortunately, were avoiding hospitals, avoiding hospitalization because of a fear of, could I contract SARS-CoV-2 at the hospital? Was the hospital a safe place for me to be able to go to overall? And so this is one of those really heart-tugging moments in medicine where in an attempt to try and preserve hospital capacity and probably not doing ideal communication, and I'm trying to reflect as Monday morning quarterback about this, we unfortunately communicated in not an intentional way, but in an unintentional way, potential concern to patients that they, perhaps hospitals were not safe places. If you can't get your knee surgery, if you can't get your elective angioplasty, maybe in fact the hospital is not the right place to go in the setting of an acute heart attack. We also saw in other health systems, this is out of Boston, in over 7,200 cardiovascular hospitalizations examined, decreases in people presenting with chest pain, heart failure, stroke, and other cardiovascular symptoms or presentations. And so it's very worrisome that in the midst of a second or third wave of COVID, are we going to see additional downturns in rates of hospitalization, not for COVID, but for acute illnesses that need, necessitate acute hospitalization and management in the acute care setting? Will we see this secondary trend? We know that the consequences of people avoiding hospitals unrelated but indirectly related to COVID-19 is reflective here. This is an observational study published in JAMA Internal Medicine earlier this past year, looking at deaths from pneumonia, influenza, and or COVID-19 using the National Center for Health Statistics. You can see that the um, solid line is observed deaths. The dashed line is the expected deaths that you would have expected on, an at, on, an, on a regular year. The blue grayish color in the bottom are COVID-19 deaths which make up the majority of the deaths. The orange, bright orange, are pneumonia influenza deaths. This is very in early into what you would say is the normal influenza period. It's, it's off cycle with influenza. But the beige color that's the remainder, those were other deaths not related to COVID-19, likely from people avoiding hospitals and emergency departments. So if we come back to the same curve that I showed a few moments ago, if we were worried about our ability to handle capacity and we maybe uh, indirectly message to patients that hospitals were not safe places to receive care at this time with this type of curve, where are we now today? This is the curve of cumulative cases that we're seeing today. And my ask would be not to repeat the past, not to see people who are not infected with COVID-19 hunkering down at home with acute appendicitis, with acute myocardial infarction, with acute stroke, with acute decompensated heart failure, who feel that they're better off at home than they are in the hospital, because unfortunately we will see a magnitude 
far in excess of what we saw in the prior slide of the numbers of non-COVID-19 related deaths that occurred during the era of COVID-19. So with that, I'm gonna turn things back to Laura. It's been a real pleasure. I know I didn't do justice to many of the cardiovascular topics, but hopefully this gives you a flavor. And the last thing I would end on is to say that unfortunately the unknown is much more prominent than the known uh, with what we have in cardiovascular medicine today. And I think it will take years to come to sort of dig out from adding science to better clarify a lot of these unknowns. Thanks again, Laura. Great, thank you so much, Ty, Dr. Gluckman, just a wealth of information given their um, review of some key concepts, including myocardial uh, ischemia. And a couple of questions that have filtered in so far, and I welcome others. Uh, can you elaborate on the recommendation to refrain from high intensity exercise during and after COVID infection? And how long after infection can exercise be resumed? Yeah, so it's a phenomenal question. This has been asked by a lot of people. A lot of you who are doing pre-participation screening or evaluation, either for casual or more commonly competitive sports. Uh, now, many of us know that competitive sports at the grade school, uh, high school, and collegiate level aren't happening to the same degree like they were before because of what's happening in our schools. So the, the short answer is, is that patients who are having ongoing symptoms that are suggestive of cardiac involvement, whether these patients were hospitalized with COVID-19 or they're managed in the outpatient setting, require further evaluation. I'll come back to that in a second. Likely, individuals who are recovered from COVID-19 who are completely asymptomatic, um, the levels and restrictions on activity are much, much, much less. And then there's an in-between where individuals may have some symptoms, but it's not clear. Fatigue is an example. Is that cardiac related? Is it COVID related? Is it unrelated to COVID-19? And the best that I can say without doing injustice to it is in JAMA cardiology in the last few months, early on and then more recently, there was a COVID-19 Ex group of experts, and this is not a formal policy document from the American College of Cardiology, but rather a group of experts who are very knowledgeable in this area who issued pre-participation, uh, if you will, flow diagram. And it's the most reasonable and offline, I can point people to this, but it's the most, I, I think it's a very pragmatic approach to giving clinicians guidance about if the patient sitting in front of me is asymptomatic with COVID, do I do anything if they want to return back to activity? Um, in, in marked contrast, if the patient's developing edema in their lower extremities, shortness of breath, and this was a new symptom, how should I go about evaluating that? So that's the best I would say is follow that guidance. We will likely see formal policy coming out in the months to come, but it's a very well done document, again, in JAMA cardiology in the last few months. Great, thanks so much for that information and we can pass along that resource to our attendees uh, to check out, thank you. Um, a little bit similar, but a slightly different question. Um, given the frequency of myocardial injury, what would you add to the standard pre-op evaluation for patients prior to elective surgery? Yeah, it's a great question. I should start by saying as of right now, and there are different camps of thought as this in this regard, 
but routine measurement of cardiac troponin. In this case, many of our Providence hospitals in the Portland metro area and the neighboring surrounding areas have moved to a high sensitivity assay. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about standard troponin or high sensitivity assays, should not be routinely collected in individuals presenting to the hospital or in the outpatient setting with suspected COVID-19, absent concern of these people having acute myocardial ischemia. So if these people are not having symptoms or signs of acute myocardial ischemia, or they got an EKG, ECG for unrelated reasons, and there are some suggestions, ST-segment depression, new T-wave inversion, absent that, troponin measurement should not be done. And um, it can help in prognostication, but it really doesn't change the treatment approach and it digs you often into a hole. So I would start by saying we should not be measuring troponin as a matter of routine. We also shouldn't be measuring natriuretic peptides, BNP or NT, pro-BNP as a matter of routine. And that's the party line from the American College of Cardiology nationally, again, absent having symptoms or signs to suggest myocardial ischemia. If that's the case for people presenting with acute hospitalization, we absolutely should not be measuring troponin levels, particularly in asymptomatic individuals in advance of cardiac surgery and non-cardiac surgery or procedures. So uh, don't go looking for it in part because we don't know what to do with it overall. And I guess I wanna reinforce in people with marginal elevations or more significant elevations who are otherwise asymptomatic, it can really open uh, uh, Pandora's box that we don't know what to do with. So I would dissuade people from measuring it as a matter of routine. Great. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Dr. Gluckman. Uh, I think concepts that apply uh, well beyond the specifics of COVID. Um, one last, perhaps very brief question in case you happen to know the answer, and this will be our last as we're nearly at nine o'clock. What percent of patients with cardiac disease and COVID also had influenza? It's a great question that I don't know the answer to. We know um, that the rates of co-infection with influenza and COVID-19 are on the rise. Um, it's why many of the tests have pivoted to a, a testing that allows you to be able to test for both influenza, the flu, and SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. We know that influenza can be a trigger of uh, heart failure or worsening of heart failure, in some cases arrhythmias, and definitely acute myocardial ischemia, whether due to a myocardial infarction, type 1 or type 2 or not. So the challenging piece for all of you that are managing people who present with this, if in fact someone presents with influenza, you should be testing them for COVID-19. And similarly, if someone has COVID-19, you should be testing them for influenza in part because we have robust therapeutics for influenza that can make a difference, particularly in shortening the disease course and the disease severity. And we have now a number of therapeutics for COVID-19. With that, I will end and turn things back to you. My only ask is please stay safe, get yourself and your loved ones vaccinated and uh, be well and hopefully 2021 treats all of us that much better. Many thanks, Dr. Gluckman. Uh, healthy 2021 to all of us. Be safe.